welcome to our podcast, What's Important to You. What's Important to You is a podcast created by the Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice Center for Learning. And this podcast is designed to give an intriguing insight on end-of-life topics. In each episode, we try to shed light and uncover new perspectives on often overlooked topics related to palliative and hospice care. I'm your host, Beza Gabrihana. In today's episode, we will be covering hospice and palliative care. What makes them similar? What makes them different? Palliative care is such a hot topic these days. And for someone uh, who's been diagnosed with terminal illness and is looking for hospice care, seeing the term palliative care appear alongside hospice can be a little bit confusing. When is it appropriate to consider hospice? And when is it appropriate to consider the two services are so alike in so many ways, and in other ways, they're a little different. Understanding the differences and similarities between the two concepts is key to making informed healthcare decisions. With that said, today's episode is a great one to listen to if you have questions about the relationship between hospice and palliative care. This episode is a pre-recorded session of a conversation featuring two of our staff members, Dr. David Schreier, our Chief Medical Officer, and Monica Escalante, our Chief Financial Officer. In this session, you'll hear Dr. Schreier and Monica use real-world examples and scenarios to discuss the relationships between hospice and palliative care. We hope you enjoy this dialogue. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our moderator for today's um, conversation, who is Monica Escalante, our Chief Financial Officer, as well as Communication Officer here at Montgomery Hospice. Monica has been working in the end-of-life care for um, 18 years now. She is a member of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. She's uh, moderated many of our virtual as well as in-person programs. So it's really an honor to have her um, facilitating this dialogue with uh, Dr. David Schneier. I'm gonna go ahead and let her introduce uh, our speaker and take it from here. Monica, thank you so much for being here with us. And I'm gonna just take, have you take it from here. Thank you, Besa. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. David Schreier. It's the Chief Medical Officer at Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice. Dr. Schreier received his medical degree from the University of Colorado, followed by a fellowship in hematology and oncology. He received a board certification in medical oncology, establishing a successful practice with a mission to deliver comprehensive medical and emotional care to patients and their families, with emphasis on the whole patient. As a medical oncologist, his involvement with helping patients and family members navigate end-of-life care issues led him to become a hospice medical director since 2007. Dr. Schreier has a lifelong passion for animals, especially dogs, also for art, for philanthropy, for equestrian competition, physical fitness, nutrition, gardening, and community service. And it's a pleasure to call him my colleague now at uh, Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice. And it's a pleasure to have this dialogue with you, Dr. Schreier. So 
Thank you. Thank Harvey. you, Monica. Yeah, <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much. It's great to be here. Uh, I love talking about hospice and palliative care. Um, yep. And and I love doing that too because in the 18 years that I've been doing this, uh, sadly, not much has changed. And um, you know, uh, one thing that. Uh, we were talking about earlier is that I'm yet to see someone who says I signed up for hospice too early. Um, I don't think in the 18 years I've been doing this, I hurt anyone. It's, if anything, it's the opposite. But we were talking about that possibility being true of palliative care as well. So maybe we are waiting too long for palliative care referrals. And I love that the audience, there's there's a breadth of knowledge in the audience. So feel free to type your questions or, or, or emotions on the chat box. But I wanna turn it to you, Dr. Schreier. Um, hospice is a subgroup of palliative care. So do you wanna tell us about this umbrella palliative care? So I, I've had the experience in my life um, after 25 years of oncology to have ask myself the question, what is palliative care? Have my colleagues asked me, what is it? Friends, family, you know, specifically what is palliative care? And so I go back to the origin really of palliation that is to relieve suffering for patients and their families. Then, you know, you ask myself the question, what is a palliative care program about? And how can you have a successful palliative care program? You really have to look at your stakeholders, that being your patients in the community, what do they need? Your providers, what do they want? And your hospice, what can they provide? Once you have those, those ingredients, you can have a successful palliative care program. So then you ask yourself, who would be a candidate for a palliative care program? And typically what I say to myself is, or other physicians, if they ask me, is if a patient has a life limiting illness with a life expectancy of two years or less, they would be a good candidate for the consideration of a palliative care program. If you have been going to the ER frequently, hospitalized, been in the ICU, missing your appointments, having frequent appointments, changing in your medications, those are all signs that things are not going well and that you're having a bumpy ride. And those would be great patients for palliative care. Now hospice, I think people, hospice is really you know, a terminal diagnosis with a prognosis of six months or less. So all hospice patients are palliative care patients, but all palliative care patients are not hospice patients. And prior to this presentation, Monica and I were, were chatting and you know, sometimes in life you think of something that gives you clarity. So if you look at this, this image on the screen, I think it shows you the relationship between palliative care and hospice. But if you can bear with me, if you were to look at this as a funnel, so one end was the wide end of the funnel and that would be palliative care. And as it narrows down to the small end, that would be hospice care. The goal being that you can have patients that enter into palliative care and transition to hospice care when the timing is right. And so the relationship is an incredibly important one. I think the saddest thing for me in my life has been either when myself this has happened or a colleague or a friend or another patient, we, we refer too late. The relationship, we're either afraid to refer, we don't want to abandon our patients, 
our patients aren't ready for the conversation, the tough conversation, so it doesn't occur. And the referral to hospice comes very, very late. So this relationship of palliative care to hospice, I think is incredibly important. They are, they're different, but they're a continuum. And, and, and you mentioned the, the issue with the conversations and uh, our Center for Learning will be offering next year uh, more sessions on how to have those conversations. And we may be offering coaching uh, for people because we find that that's a, a, a legitimate need in our community that a lot of the patients, even patients that are um, referred to um, to palliative care, they don't really know why they were referred to, to palliative care. Um, so I, even if they were told, they are not hearing it. So it's a complicated conversation that may be not only one person saying it, but the other one receiving it. Um, so in our next slide, Dr. Schreier, we we, before we said, not all palliative care is hospice, but hospice is palliative care. But we see now that there are two circles that also overlap. And there are things that are different from one another and things that they have in common. Um, sort of some people may be eligible for palliative care, but may be transitioning into hospice. And some others may be purely eligible for hospice at that point. So can you speak to, to this slide? Um, Sure. So once again, palliative care is when you have a life-limiting illness. So you do like to think of somebody that has an incurable disease, but that doesn't mean that they're not receiving treatment. So they may have a colon cancer or a lung cancer. And you know, not all malignancies necessarily have a six-month or less survival. Many of them, lymphomas, low-grade cancers can live for many months, if not years in some cases. So having a palliative care program, you identify your patients, and then really you wanna support them so that they can pursue the treatments to extend their life for as long as they can. But the key is to maintain the quality of their life. So if you can decrease unnecessary doctor visits, ER visits, hospitalizations, while pursuing the care to extend their life, then it's a true success. Hospice care, conversely, Medicare really helps us define this. They tell us that it's a terminal diagnosis with a prognosis of less than six months. It's covered by Medicare. Medicare really drives this. Private, private insurance companies pay for it also, but the vast majority of patients fall under the Medicare benefit. So hospice care is looking at a multidisciplinary approach to our patients. We're gonna manage symptoms not only medical symptoms such as pain, but we're gonna manage emotional symptoms, grief. Um, our social worker is gonna help with any social problems. So it, it really um, provides different things, but they overlap, focusing on quality of life and emotional and physical and spiritual support. Yep, and if I may add that, um, Medicare is also paying for palliative care now. Uh, and they are also paying for virtual visits palliative, right. uh, since COVID. And this is probably something that not everyone is aware uh, that under the palliative care, and, and we do at Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice have another side of our organization that is called Palliative Medicine Consultant that has been offering these virtual visits um, for over a year now. And mm -hmm. um, so that's that's been really helpful uh, during COVID and they are covered by 
commercial insurance and and um, and Medicare. Um, well, it's very, it's, it's really exciting if you think about the times that we're in, that you can actually bring something to a patient and a family when they're terrified, they're isolated, they're lonely, and they're afraid to go to the doctor, but we can do that virtually, but we can also come into the home. So we, you know, our palliative program goes from the home to the clinic and uh, it's, it's, it, we don't go into the hospital, but we are in the home and in the clinic. So it's a wonderful resource for patients and families and providers because providers during these times also can't do everything. They need, we need to work together to get the best patient experience possible. Yes, and we have a question on the chat box that says, does private insurance pay for hospice? Absolutely. All of the private insurances pay for hospice, and um, they also pay for palliative care. Um, so, with there's a credentialing issue that we need to do with commercial insurances, but that's on on our side. But just to to clarify for the audience, um, as of January, we will be fully equipped to take home-based palliative care patients. So this is what Dr. Schreier is. You're getting the news fresh. And out another person in the community has heard this before. So we are ready to um, serve our community with home-based palliative care, which means our doctors will be doing home visits for palliative care purposes. Um, and the thing that I think is you know, particularly exciting about understanding that palliative care and hospice care are really, really connected to each other, they're on the continuum, if you will, is because for some people, either for social reasons, ethnic reasons, background, whatever the reason may be, the word hospice equates to death. Really what we wanna say is end of life experience. But if you can create that relationship with the patient and the family in the palliative setting, even though you know they may have a terminal diagnosis, you can start the conversation about goals of care, about disease progression, all of these things, then the transition for end of life is effortless and smooth, opposed to it being, my doctor gave up on me. My doctor said, took my hope away. They said I was going to, going to die. These sort of really harsh statements that sometimes you'll hear, that's obviously not what doctors and nurse practitioners and providers want to do. They want to support their patients. But it's, it's palliative care gives us the time. It gives us the ability to do it over days and weeks and months, opposed to getting a patient who is literally at the end of their life and you have to have that tough conversation. And they're sometimes really caught off guard. And that's unfortunate. Right, and, and another thing that I think it's important to, for the audience to know is that our palliative care physicians will work and do work with the attending oncologist or the attending, uh, whichever the specialty of, uh, of the attending is at that moment. Uh, we coordinate with them, we, we upload, um, uh, medical notes and numerous EMRs, as, as, as many as they are needed for the continuity of care to be smooth in um, the transition to, and the, the work together as a team. So our, our physicians don't take over the care, they augment to the care that is provided. Um, right. Right, Dr. Right. You could absolutely. And, you know, I make the argument that all stage four cancer patients should 
have a palliative care at the time of their diagnosis so they can have the extra time necessary for discussions of goals of care, end of life, disease progression, you know, what matters to the patient, you know, understanding all of those details that help the uh, ease the burden of the journey. And Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice being who we are, and as the CFO, I can talk about this. Um, if you know someone who needs our care, please make a referral because some, sometimes um, it's a question of whether the insurance will pay for it or not. But we, we have managed to uh, raise funds so that for those who cannot, uh, who are underinsured or um, their insurances are not covering this type of benefit, we, we've never turned anyone away. Um, that's not uh, what, who we are or what we do. So, Dr. Go ahead. I really like this slide because I think this slide shows us what end of life can look like, the different formats without palliative care and hospice. It's just one example. I don't think I can show you with my pointer. I think Monica may have to do it. But you know, this first one, sudden, sudden death, a large percentage of people have an MI, mm -hmm. they have an accident, they have a stroke. So in other words, they have an event which causes their death. Some people are living a normal life in this terminal illness graph, and then they get the diagnosis, and then they have a relatively quick death that just dives off. In the organ failure graph, you can see what I talked about. This is very similar in COPD patients. They are constantly having exacerbations. They go into the hospital. They never return back to their baseline. And it's a progressive, fluctuating end of life. And then for patients in the frailty curve, you can see that they just sort of dwindle. You can call it the dwindles, failure to thrive, old age. There's lots of things that you could, patients you could put into that category. The exciting thing for me about uh, palliative care and hospice is we can change all of those graphs except for sudden death. We can take the terminal illness graph right there, Monica, and at this point to the right, if you go to the right, mm -hmm. to the right, yeah, that curve can be launched way out so that death can go, there you go, exactly. Sorry, I turned this. Uh, so I death. I attempt to right on this. Right. Okay, great. Death goes out smooth, but we can maintain quality of life and oftentimes extend life with hospice and palliative care. In the organ failure graph, that curve, which is very irregular, is filled with dramatic peaks and valleys ending up in death, can also be smoothed and lengthened so that the patients will have an easier, smoother landing. I, I oftentimes will liken it to an airplane. You know, if you're in turbulence and you have a rocky landing, everybody's scared to death, holding each other's hands, holding their breath, saying prayers for some people, and they land and things are okay. But for people at end of life, they don't get that second chance. So that rocky landing, that experience of terror is how they end their life. And with frailty, what we wanna do is support patients so that once again, it's smoothed out, but it's lengthened so that hopefully people will live longer, 
with the quality of life, not without quality of life, but with quality of life. So that's where I really see the excitement for palliative care and hospice care, that we can really impact lives, change how long people live and modify the quality of their life. I think this is a very important slide because it also, if, if we add the psychosocial components and spiritual components to these um, uh, graphs and the things that people and families are able to do when it's a smoother transition, right? So if, if, if we talk about, for instance, the organ failure, um, it's hospitalizations and families going into the hospital and, and right now that it's even harder, all of that. Um, can you tell us, Dr. Shrey, from your experience, what are the things that patients and their families don't do or could do if they had a smoother transition? So well, I, I have one story that I don't know if this will help, but I think as providers, we wanna do the best for our patients. We never want to take hope away and we never want to abandon them and we want to let them know that there's hope. So in my practice, I had a patient and she was from Germany and she developed gastric cancer and it was a, a nasty diagnosis. A, you know, a very aggressive disease and she was getting chemotherapy. She was tough as nails and things were going along well. And it was really sort of, I don't wanna say at the onset of making palliative care available for patients, but I was very interested in it and I referred her to palliative care. In my heart, I was worried she was gonna feel that I was abandoning her, that I was giving up on her, that I was taking hope away. I saw her, two to three weeks later, and she looked at me and she had a very Germanic style, which was a little bit grim. Um, I come from a German on both sides of my family, so uh, I'm familiar with that. But, um, and she looked at me and I thought she was upset. And she said, I wanna thank you so much for the palliative care consult for the nurse practitioner, I can't remember her name, who came to my house, who talked to my family, who reassured me, who gave me a different kind of hope that you've been talking to me about. They helped me not come see you last Wednesday when I thought I needed to. So it was just that story where you realized the value of helping people in between doctor visits too, that we have a, a depth that we can offer to our patients and their family. And that, that was an extremely gratifying experience for me because that was my hope, that was my intention to add another layer of care to her, um, to her care and, and provide more hope to her, to her patient, to herself and her family. And you know, her outcome was the same. She died of her gastric cancer, but her journey was improved. And, and I think that's really what physicians want. I mean, unfortunately, the studies tell us that physicians are some of the worst prognosticators um, out there, unfortunately, but I think that's because there's always technologies, there's always treatments, there's always studies, and we wanna provide hope for our patients. But what we have to make sure that we do is understand what matters to them, what are their goals of care, and how can we respect those goals of care and help them achieve them. And I think that's where my experience really, um, really, really helped this lady. It was very, very gratifying.
That's a very good example. Uh, the other part is that there are some studies that prove that if people come into um, palliative care and then hospice care, they can live longer. So yeah. these, these blue lines that we draw in these graphs, are we're not making this up. There are studies that prove that um, that is possible. And uh, for families um, of all walks of life, it's, it's a smoother, well, you know, during our team meeting where we discuss our patients every two weeks, we've had patients come on to the service and then the nurses will say to me, for example, we re recently had a patient with also with gastric cancer, a 90 year old gentleman, and he, the nurse is like, he's walking around the house, he's eating and he's gaining a little bit of weight. She goes, what's going on, doctor? And I said, well, you know, you have to realize that a lot of the treatments that we give our patients cause side effects, which decrease the performance status of the patient. They actually take the patient down and they never get back to baseline. So given time and lifting sort of that treatment blanket off of the patient allows them to have an improved quality of life. So sometimes in hospice, we actually see an improvement in our patients. It does, once again, doesn't change the outcome, but it does change the journey. Absolutely. And how we get there makes a difference for families because they get to say the things they, they want. We've talked about saying, thank you, I love you, forgive me, I forgive you. All of those very important things. Um, this is the traditional curative model that you have on your screens without palliative care. And um, I really want to ask Dr. Schreier to tell us a very inspiring story of the days when he was practicing, practicing oncology exclusively and how, how this model can affect someone's life and transform other lives. Um, yeah. So Dr. Schreier, can you talk, us, talk to us about Raymond? Sure, but I wanna put this story in context for you. So, you know, this part of the graph, uh, the preventative care graph, you know, you're living a healthy life, vaccines, mammograms, colonoscopies, then you get a diagnosis. And then once again, the curvy line just shows that you have exacerbations. You never reach back to a baseline and you don't have any other services and you have an event that causes death. So it's an uninterrupted sort of letting the disease run its natural course with no support. And during my career, I had the amazing opportunity of taking care of a young man whose name was Raymond Wentz. And he was 17 years old. Um, the way my office was set up is, you know, we have a long hallway and they just put the charts in. You look at your charts, you know who's coming in. So I pulled this chart out of the door. I looked at it and I had reviewed it the day before and it was Raymond and he's a young man, night sweats, big abdomen, and already I was concerned for lymphoma. I walked in the door and there was Raymond and his sister who was 19 sitting beside him, holding his hand. There was no family, no aunts, no uncles, no parents, just two scared, literally scared children looking back at me. Um, uh, his journey, was a very complicated one filled with chemotherapy. Um, it, it, he, he had no resources, uh, life resources or social resources. 
They both worked at a grocery store so that they could have health insurance. They took public transportation. And, you know, it was a sad story in so many ways. But Raymond always smiled. He always had a twinkle in his eye. Uh, one, one morning we got a call and the triage nurse said, Raymond has a temperature. I said, you know, tell him to come to the office. And we kept calling him all day long. He, no answer, no answer. Four o'clock he comes into the office looking terrible. Our, our nurse Yvonne sort of scolded him and said, you know, Raymond, I told you to come right away. Where have you been? And he said, I did, I had to ride my bike. So right there is just a haunting moment where I was like, oh my gosh, you forget. You know, as a doctor, I'm taking care of his lymphoma, but there's all this other side to this human being. So he was admitted to the hospital. He was consulted by infectious disease doctors, GI doctors, you know, multiple people. He had a 63 day hospital course. His sister would come when she could come. She could take a bus. His parents, his dad had already died. His mother was passed away and no aunts and uncles, no grandparents, just the two of them. At some point during his hospitalization, my wife and I tried to fill that role of surrogate parents and bring in some candy, bring in some pumpkins, do some things that made him feel like he had a family. But when it became clear he was not going to live, I went to his sister and I said, uh, Michelle, you know, Raymond's not going to survive and I recommend that he get transferred to hospice. And she said, I wanna take him home. And I looked and I was like 77 year old, 77 pound young man on TPN, on IV fluids, everything that a hospital has to offer was happening in his room. And I, I said, I don't think that you can handle this. And she said, I can handle it. The only thing I have to worry about is food. And that was the second haunting, you know, just chilling moment for me. And she took him home that night and he passed away. Um, my wife and I and the nurses got a month's rent for her, food, money for food. And I, I, I just reflected, what could I have done better as a doctor? And I realized two things. One, I could have actually, I can actually prevent other people from being in Raymond's situation. So I created a foundation to help needy patients. But I think the really important thing was, is I realized the value of hospice. I came too late to Raymond's sister and Raymond to let them know he was going to die. They literally had less than 24 hours to prepare. So I failed them at that point. I really, I wasn't aware, you know, 18 years ago, I, we weren't trained about hospice. I just didn't know what I know now. So that's the point in my life when I became a hospice director. I volunteered, I started working, and then I became the medical director of a small hospice. I realized that end of life care has to go side by side with care. And so that's really my story. Um, Raymond made me a better doctor and a better person. He made me embrace end of life. And um, it's really led to the most fulfilling part of my career. So that's, that's really the story for me that in so many ways haunts me that I, 
if, if you will, I let them down. I didn't do it intentionally, but I didn't provide the resources that those two young people really needed and deserved. Well, Dr. Schreier, we can't provide what we don't know about. And, and, and that's why we are on this mission now to spread the word and equip people, not only yeah. with the knowledge, but the tools um, to have those conversations that are so hard. Um, and sometimes you need to have them many times before people hear them. Um, and families need to prepare as those sudden, um, it can't be sudden that they are told, you know, treatment is not right. working. Well, I think you have to realize as a physician, sometimes you can't change the outcome. You can change the journey. And the journey is not all about uh, acute care sometimes you have to step back and look and say, this is an incurable patient. They need palliative care now. They need hospice care now. They need end of life care, spiritual, medical support so that they can adjust, so that they can get their lives in order. They can say the goodbyes, the thank yous, I'm sorry's. They can create the legacy with their family of things that will help them, uh, the family go forward in the future. I, that's such a moving story, and, and Raymond has become a source of inspiration to me as well, as we want to um, support you in spreading the word and moving away from this um, traditional model into the new model um, that it's, it's, it's includes palliative care early on. Uh, because no one can sign up for palliative care too early, probably, uh, as they can't sign up for hospice too early either. Um. Well, I think that the thing is, I don't know if people in the audience, this will resonate with you, but it definitely resonates with me. You know, um, as we live our lives, we develop filters that make things hard to talk about. When you're young children, they don't, you know, they might, young children will pick up their skirts or you know, pick their nose or do things that adults are like, oh, don't do that. But, but as adults, we know you can't do that. You develop these filters. Well, if end of life all of a sudden comes, you have to break down those filters and you need help doing it. You need a chance to say goodbye. And this, this slide with palliative care in the continuum really, to me, smooths out the disease process. So the palliative care smooths out that line, that hyphenated line becomes a much smoother line. But the more important thing that it does is it creates the relationship with the patient and the family. So when it's time to have this discussion about end of life care in the setting of hospice, the relationship is there. And that means that in hospice, our social worker can come in, our nurse can come in, our volunteer, our certified in nursing, our physician, our chaplain, all of these resources can really wrap their arms around the patient and the family, and they can help them say, you know, have comfort, medical con control of symptoms, emotional control, say goodbye, and then the bereavement councils are there for up to 13 months to care for the, patient, the patient's family. So it really gives you a much smoother, gentler, kinder, more humane way to embrace illness and end of life. And it makes end of life a process. I always tell people that hospice cannot add life to days, but we can, excuse me, hospice adds life to days when we can't add days to life. 
So we may not be able to extend your life, but we can redefine your life. We can bring joy into it. It sounds impossible, but you can. You can find joy in circumstances that you don't think it exists. And that's really what we can do. And one of the many things we can do. And one of the ways that I've seen done in, in the hospice teams is the what drives the plan of care is what's important to the patient. What are the things that the patient wants to accomplish in the time that he or she has left? And the whole team is working to honor those goals of care, um, which could be attending a wedding or, or, or being alive for the, for the birth of a grandchild or so many different things. Um, but that's how what drives the plan of care. It's, it's so interesting. Um, right. No, I think the goals of care are, you can't talk about them too much. It's really, you know, I, I hate to sound trite, but it's telling the story of somebody's life. It's page by page, uh, chapter by chapter, as you, as you read the book as you create the book and you don't really know what's gonna happen until you get uh, to certain points. You, a, a point, a fork in the road, you have a decision, you talk about what matters to the patient and then you create a new plan of care. You carry that plan of care out, You another fork in the road, what matters to the patient at that juncture? So it, it's a constant reevaluation of what matters to the patient. I have a true, a unbelievable story I was really fortunate to hear uh, uh, go to the Aspen Institute and there was a small group of people uh, that were visiting for two days, um, listening to uh, lectures by uh, premier hospice and palliative care uh, scholars in our country. And one of the uh, scholars told a personal story and it resonated with me so much. Um, what what she said was she her father her mother had passed away and her father was in his 90s and was living independently and she would see him frequently call him on a regular basis and you know things were good she uh she really that was it she called him and saw him when she could and um that was their status quo well one day um she got a call that her father had backed his car into a telephone pole at the grocery store. And he actually was taken by ambulance because he had neck pain. So she lived about an hour and a half away. She drove up to the hospital. She met with the neurosurgeons and, and the internists and everybody. And they developed a plan that he would go through surgery. It would probably be you know, a nine, 12 hour surgery. And then he would have someplace measured in many weeks to several months of rehabilitation. And as a physician, she felt, okay, I've got a plan. And she got back in her car and, um, she was driving home and then she had this sort of epiphany, this aha, I guess her hospice and palliative care inner self came out and she's like, we didn't really discuss this plan with my father. I don't really know what matters to him. She turned the car around and she went back to the hospital and she sat next to him and she held his hand and she said, you know, dad, we've come up with this plan. I'm really sorry. I didn't ask you what you want to do. And he just, frankly said, you know, I just want to watch ball games and eat ice cream. That's really what I want to do. I don't want to go to rehab. I don't want surgery. 
And so they revisited the whole topic and he got put in a collar for safety purposes that was comfortable enough. He got whatever was necessary and he lived 13 more months having ice cream, watching ball games, and his daughter shared in that really what he considered joyful life. So once they figured out what mattered to him, his days were actually what he wanted his days to be. And after all, how many people live 13 more months when they're 93 years old, opposed to being in, an, um, in a rehabilitation center, especially just think if COVID would be there, he wouldn't even be able to see his family. So it was really a, a, you know, sometimes we share our own vulnerability like I did with, with Raymond, like this physician did with her father. And you learn so much about realizing that it's what matters to our patients. We offer them the resources. We tell them, this is what we can do for you. This is how we can impact your life and listen to what matters to them and then get their, their plan of care. Then uh, let them know what we're going to do. Yeah, it takes a lot of strength to be vulnerable. It takes a lot of strength to put our beliefs aside and this desire to, to do what we've known could work, to let our loved ones tell us what is good for them in their own words, um, right? It's, it's, you just shared two beautiful, beautiful stories that um, I'm sure the audience is enjoying, um, especially the one um, about a physician that, you know, you came up with a plan to do what? Solve the problem. Would, yeah. solve we, the used, problem. we used our training to solve the problem. But what we always have to remember is there's a human being on the other side of that problem. And we have to ask questions. We have to listen. We have to have silence. We have to have empathetic and um, compassionate statements that they understand What's your understanding of your diagnosis? What's your understanding of your prognosis? Allow them to fill the blanks. What matters to you? What do you want from this point in your life? Understanding these things creates a relationship with your patient and allows them to have a journey that makes them feel independent and in control at a time in a life, at life which can be very out of control. I mean, I don't know about any of you, but... I don't like bumpy airplane rides, and I certainly don't want to end up that being my end of life. I'd rather say, this is how the ride's going to go to the best of my ability. This is what I need from you, doc, to help the ride go the way I want it to. These are the things I want. These are the things I don't want. And also making sure that they're educated choices, they're, they're informed decisions, taking the time. And that, you know, that's the thing about palliative care. Oftentimes acute care physicians don't have the time that's necessary to do this, or they don't have the time necessary to reinforce what they've already done. So we can come in as their partners and help reinforce uh, a, a care plan, help reinforce goals of care expand the conversation with patients and family. And we can add, say, you know, hey, I just had this great conversation in the home setting. I wanted to let you know, so the next time you see them, you have this insight into what matters to them. Yeah, we, we have a partnership with the Aquilino Cancer Center in one of the um, oncologists there was relating to us in one of our um, progress um, meetings that um, there was this couple that kept having issues with pain. It, 
he he came for palliative care consult, but but this doctor said I think our palliative care physician, uh, what she did was more of a um, counseling session with the couple. It was almost. Um, couples therapy session, because what was really happening, it was when one spouse was not hearing what the other spouse wanting, was wishing for, for each other. And the outcome was that the patient was hiding the medications and not taking them. So therefore, you know, pain was out of control and, and so forth. So once they had a chance to hear one another and the palliative care doctor took the time, had the time, and right. they take the time to get deep into the reason, the root cause for all these situation and allow them to express their feelings and validate one each other's feelings. And yes, it was magical. That's what the, the doctor said. It was magical. And the quality of life from that moment on changed completely. Um, I think one of the things I recognized too a long time ago is that human beings are complex. Um, their lives are complex, some more uh, than others. And, and But whatever your life is, you bring it into your disease process. So whatever those dynamics are in your family, that's they're going to be heightened during an illness. So if you can bring palliative care, hospice care, social workers, uh, a team in to help sort of unravel those complexities and calm them down and settle them down, then the family can actually focus on the medical issues, focus on saying goodbye or whatever matters to them. You know, we have to, we don't know what matters to them until we ask, but it's far better to be able to get a good answer when things are settled rather than when they're in turmoil. Right. And we have a question from the audience, Dr. Schreier. Thank you so much for your inspiring stories. How does hospice palliative care work within this in the setting where the patient is not capable of making decisions? Does the care primarily focus on pain and symptom management? How can we ensure that these patients also have a joyful, if possible, quotes, end of life? So anytime somebody I think what you're asking me is, are patients, if there's a question, is a patient decisional? So what I, I don't like to determine if a patient is decisional or not prior to them coming on to hospice, because I think that they're not my patient yet and it's not, and it could be unfair. But the point is once they're, so they either have an activated POA at the time that they come onto hospice, or if they become um, undecisional during hospice, we activate their POA. And then what we tell patients, families who are the POA is you don't have to make the decision that you want for your patient. You are the voice of your patient. There's a very, there's, it's a distinct difference. Instead of saying, oh, I want my mom to have this and this, we would say, what does your mom want? When your mother was decisional, what would she have wanted? And you know, one of the big things in palliative care is to have these discussions way in advance. You know, you start having discussions. Um, many of you know people, either in your family or friends who have dementia. It's so important to actually have the discussion when you can about, for example, are we gonna treat a 
of bronchitis with antibiotics. Are we going to treat a, U, uh, a UTI with antibiotics? Some people say, if they don't know anything, they can't feed themselves, they cannot bathe themselves, they can't get out of bed, they have no quality of life, then I don't want that. Like for myself, my advanced directive says, if I get into that state for whatever reason, please don't give me an antibiotic for a bronchitis or a pneumonia, please don't treat a UTI. So the other question is, I think the part of the question that you're asking me is how do we make sure they're comfortable if they're not decisional? And that's the beauty of hospice. Our nurses are amazing. Um, you know, hospice is a physician-directed, uh, really uh, nurse-directed physician-run organization. So our, our nurses are out there, uh, hands-on, and they have an expertise on the medications to use for agitation, the medications that are successful with shortness of breath. How do we combine morphine and Ativan safely so that we don't expedite that death? You know, obviously, if you control somebody's rapid respiratory rate, that may lead to organ failure and the end of their life. But you've already accepted that you're at end of life and you realize you're going to treat that symptom to keep them comfortable. So you never want to do anything to intend to hasten end of life, but you want to manage a symptom. And if end of life comes out of managing the symptom, then I find that to be acceptable care. Yeah. Um, perfect. Yes, thank you for addressing my question. Um, thank you for asking that question. Um, so we are going to talk about goals of care. And sort of we have this chart and all of you are going to be receiving a copy of these. Um, um, it's a handout that we also have in, in print um, that puts palliative care and hospice care. But before we dive into this, um, Dr. Schreier, I think it's also fair to say that not all chronic pain is necessarily eligible for palliative care, that there's some other pain that it's not palliative care. Do you wanna speak a little bit about that? So yes, so that's what I alluded to up front. You have to mm -hmm. understand your stakeholders when you're looking for a palliative care program. So you have to understand what is the patient uh, looking for? What are, what, uh, what, what is the patient need and the community need? What are the primary uh, care providers uh, want and what can we give them? So the best example I think I can give you is we were asked if we would manage the pain of sickle cell patients. Now you could argue on one side, well, sickle cell could be a life limiting disease, but so yeah, they would qualify. But sickle cell could be um, not a life limiting disease from regard to two years. But the reality of it is palliative programs are not really pain management on their own. So you, you, we don't just do pain management. So if you have a bad back and you need pain management, that would not meet the criteria of the palliative care program. You do typically don't have two years or left to live if you have a bad back or if you have uh, post-surgical pain or um, I'm trying to think of another example of pain, but typically that is not what a palliative care program does. At least that's not what our, our palliative care program 
does. Okay, so this is a comparison what you have on your screens. Uh, we have uh, on the left palliative care on on the right hospice. Um, and sort of on the definition on the palliative care that we will also be talking about the home-based palliative care, which will be ready to welcome patients in probably as early as January first, uh, 2021. Um, so we have a physician or a nurse practitioner will do a consult and this is home-based. So they will go to to patients' homes, and maybe the follow-ups might be a, a virtual consult or, or not, who knows. We also have this palliative care right now offered at the Aquilino Center. Um, we have two days a week, the morning and afternoon that our um, doctor is um, there seeing patients. Right, Dr. Schreier, is that? Yes, so yeah. right now our palliative uh, services are at Aquilina, but we also, Today, actually tomorrow, I don't think Monica knows this, we are seeing our first home-based palliative care patient. So we're really excited about that, especially in the times of COVID, especially for elderly patients. And our plan in January is to start in White Oak and be seeing hopefully all advanced stage cancer patients for at least a palliative care consult with their diagnosis. Yep. So we are, I didn't know that, but we are already getting um, referrals. And of course, the hospice care is the interdisciplinary team that has the physicians uh, and the rest of the team, um, nurse available 24-7, um, and the social worker, the chaplain, the volunteers, um, this big team that goes into people's homes. And one misconception that I want to address right now is a friend of mine, um, her father was eligible for hospice and the attending physician said to her mother, uh, I don't think it's a good time to, to sign up for hospice because hospice is seeing a lot of COVID patients and with them coming to your house, uh, you, your father and you may be exposed to COVID. Uh, Dr. Schreier, can you, can you speak to that uh, idea that this one physician might have had about COVID? Um, well, we are following all the CDC guidelines and you know our nurses go either virtually or in person. And we have had no, none of our staff have been positive for COVID. And we've actually, I'm not sure our last count, but we've cared for 60 some odd COVID positive patients. And some of the patients to let you know they've come on, but they actually got better and then were discharged from our program. Some of them come on to our program and either because of COVID, because of comorbid diseases, and they pass away on our program. We have a relationship with a hospital too for inpatient care for COVID positive patients if it's needed. So I, I think hospice, we are here to take care of patients no matter what the circumstances are. You know, we, we are committed to the mission. Um, uh, I am so grateful to work for a nonprofit organization that has that mission in the forefront of everything we, we do. So um, did yeah. I answer your question, Monica? Yes, you have. Yes, you have. And, and we have our nurses doing the visits. And as and a lot of the services and other support services that could be provided virtually uh, are being provided virtually if needed. Um, sort of, I think, 
um, I, I was really mad to hear upset at that doctor who said yeah. that. So we have to think about a, how we can spread the word that that's actually yeah. not the case. Um, Dr. Schreier, we have a question from Anne um, saying, haven't seen the two year palliative care requirement before. Is that pretty a pretty widespread requirement? I don't know that I would say that it's a requirement. I think it's a guideline that helps us determine if a person's appropriate. So in other words, for many physicians, I think if you just are able to ask yourself, would it surprise you if Mrs. Jones passed away from her COPD in the next two years? If your answer is yes, that's a reason why you should send to palliative care. Let us do our work and evaluate and um, determine if it's appropriate. But the other things that are are on that list, how many times have they been hospitalized in the last year? How many appointments have they missed? Or how many extra appointments are they requesting? How many medication adjustments are you requiring? Um, or do you have left that could be done? And once you start looking at that, you start getting a good medical educated guesstimate about where they are on the disease continuum. And you know, many times, we have success stories in hospice. We discharge them because they're not ready for end of life, actually. The support has improved their quality of life and they're living longer. And we're going to uh, recommend that they be in our palliative care program until they indeed need hospice care. So this is estimating things to the best of our ability. What I would say is you don't wanna miss on the other end. You don't want to go, oops they died in seven days. I wish I would have, or why didn't I? Or I wasn't sure what it meant. I wasn't sure when or how. I mean, reach out to us and let us help you um, evaluate or discuss or anything that we can do um, to provide the support for the patients in, in, in the, on this continuum. But I have to tell you a story. I like stories because sometimes I, they teach me a lot in my life. Um, but when I was practicing in medical oncology very early on in my career, you know, sometimes you get patients who transfer their care to you and, um, sometimes they're dissatisfied with the other providers. Sometimes they're in denial. Sometimes they've moved to the city, a different city, their insurance companies change. There's just a, a variety of reasons why people change care. Um, but I had a, a new consult and she was a young woman. I think she was 38 with metastatic breast cancer. And she had two children, she was married and she came into the consultation very alert and cheerful and, and I reviewed everything. And you know, one question I asked is, could you please tell me from your perspective why you're here? Like what, to help me understand what I can do for you. What are you looking for a second opinion? Do you wanna transfer your care? And she said, I want help dying with dignity. And you know, that was probably 18 years ago. And I was like, she goes and I've heard you're comfortable having these conversations. I've heard that you will, you will listen to me and that we can talk about things. And she said, I don't know if I'm ready to stop chemotherapy, but I don't want to make my end of life a mistake. I've got two small children and I want to pass this legacy on to them. 
So during the next months of her life, we talked about many things. We talked about what her favorite color was, messages for graduations, messages for births of babies, for marriages, for um, recipes, all of these things. And as you can imagine, a young woman with breast cancer, she died. And um, I went to the funeral and as oftentimes happens with young people, there was probably a thousand people at this funeral. And I was really choked up. I just, you saw her life in front of you and you realized the loss that everybody must be feeling. Well, the first person to come to the podium to speak was her 12 year old daughter. And she said, I wanna tell you about my mom's 10 most favorite things. Everybody in the, was crying, just sobbing. But the joy of it was the mother had passed her legacy, her life legacy onto her daughter. Her daughter didn't have to discover it after her mother was gone. They were able to do that work together. And to me, that's what palliative care and hospice care is all about is creating the relationship, deciding what matters to the patient, listening to them and helping um, them make that come true. And that, that story, um, you know, having your daughter know your favorite margarita recipe, what pizza night was like, what they did on their vacations, all of these things just told you volumes about who the woman was. And the daughter at 12 years old, 10 years old, got to know that firsthand. So I think when we look at these charts, these charts are so important because there's information that you need to know. But I really think I learned from people's lives what hospice and palliative care can do, how they can transform their lives at such an incredible time. And then that's really what has mattered to me the most. And thank you for that story and taking the time to, to allow people to, uh leave those legacies and sort of um that's such a beautiful story we are almost on the hour but there's one more question here on the chat box uh, dr schreier says in hospice it seems you generally take over um care of the patient how do you coordinate with the a pcp in palliative care so that's a good uh, in hospice care the patient according to cms is able to choose their attending so some physicians want to continue to be the attending and other physicians request that the hospice medical team takes over the attending role so we're very very flexible for that we want to support in the hospice setting whichever way it makes sense in the palliative care setting the attending the primary care physician remains the attending and we are consultants so we provide information back and guide um, guide them, manage symptoms, all the things we've talked about today. Yep, yep. So we do coordinate with the attending in both oh, yes. situations. Cool. Um, and sort of I put on your screen uh, the last slide for, for today, which is also comparing palliative care and hospice. One of the things um, I have to um, mention is of, with Medicare, um, there's no co-pays for the patients, there's no co-pays for the families, there's none of that. Uh, and for, um, for Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice, if there's a commercial insurance and the patient has that co-pay and they cannot afford it, uh, we know the circumstances, we, we, we would uh, 
we would not pursue collection of that copay if that if the family cannot afford it. On the palliative care side, um, there is a copay, but Medicare pays for it, and now they're paying also virtual visits, which is also quite con convenient. I mean, the, I've heard stories from patients that love the virtual visits um, on their cell phones and um, sort of use them more often than they would go to the doctor's office before. So the medications and their palliative care are not covered, whereas in their hospice, all the medications related to the terminal diagnosis are fully covered. Um, we also, under hospice, you have all this equipment that we can put in people's homes, uh, such as hospital bed, uh, all infusion therapies are mobile now, they can go into people's homes and, and much more, uh, all of this equipment. Uh, with palliative care, there's the telehealth and that's, um, and under Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice, we have complementary therapies, which includes Reiki, pet visits, music therapy, music by the bedside, threshold choir, aromatherapy, and, um, and also telehealth. So we are like five minutes over the hour. Um, and I'm going to thank our audience today and thank Dr. Schreier, it's been wonderful. I wanna reiterate, we are going to be offering more of these um, webinars starting next year. And we really wanna um, support our community in having those difficult conversations. So we are going to start um, something very specific so that doctors and nurse practitioners can have the tools and the supports they need to have these conversations. Thank you, Dr. Schreier. And I'm gonna turn it to Beza. Thank you so much, both of you. This was indeed powerful. We're really taking the time to share your knowledge and expertise and wisdom with us. The stories were indeed very powerful. And I could have sat here and listened to you both for another hour. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of What's Important to You.
We hope this session was beneficial in helping you understand the relationship between hospice and palliative care and when is it appropriate to initiate either one of the services. If you're interested in learning more about Montgomery Hospice or Prince George's Hospice, I encourage you to visit our website at www.montgomeryhospice.org. We actually have a new website, so I really highly encourage you to check it out. We have many resources, including information in different languages um, on our website. If you're interested in listening to any of our previous episodes, I encourage you to visit Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You could also visit our website to hear any of our previous episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to it.